Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Adam. Today's episode features a discussion between a healthcare professional and person living with HIV to inform strategies on improving care delivery, specifically to support engagement in care. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Breaking Down Barriers, Dialogues on Optimizing Engagement in HIV Care. During this episode, Baba Femi Taiwo, Jean Stollerman, Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, and Vincent Chrysostomo, Director of Aging Services at the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, considered the needs of people living with HIV as they age, encompassing the clinical and external resources necessary to support physical and psychosocial health to maintain engagement in care. For more information on our faculty, along with a link to the complete program, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started with Dr. Taiwo. So Vince, the, you know, as a provider, one of the things that I've really been uh, thinking about a lot is how to well, make sure that we're capturing all the medical needs of uh, persons living with HIV. And I'm sure you can uh, testify to the idea that this is not a static thing. It tends to evolve with the patients over, over time. And one of the advantages that we have had in our field in the last decade or so is that the number of drugs that we have to treat uh, HIV uh, has really increased. And uh, but there are some that seem to be prescribed more than others. And in fact, there is got to a stage where when a person with HIV sees a medical doctor, you can easily pick one drug almost all the time and be almost always right. But if we keep doing that, we may lose out some nuances that really address the needs of the individual. And so I'm trying in my practice to learn what I call mindful prescribing where I just take that person sitting in front of me at that particular time to really think about what's peculiar about this person, about their current stage, about their evolving medical and social needs, and then look in the toolbox to look at, okay, how do we match the needs of this individual to their current uh, situation? And I don't know whether this is something that you, when you talk to your doctor, is this something that you're able to to feel is going on? And, and how can you help us as providers to maybe incorporate this mindful prescribing and personalization of treatment a little bit better into our day-to-day prescription habits. Yes, maybe you can go into a little bit of what your process is like. What do you take into consideration You know, when you're doing this? I'm assuming that in your practice, you have a pretty diverse group of folks, age, ethnicities, gender, that kind of stuff. So how do you go about doing the mindful prescribing? Right. You know, I think about the patient's medical conditions. Some people have diabetes. Some people have bone issues. Some people have uh, chronic kidney disease. And then I think about the patient's preferences because a lot of patients want to take one pill once a day. But some patients now know that you can actually get an injectable treatment. And so, in fact, it's not just that they should know, we should make sure everybody is aware of that. And so they can incorporate that into their own uh, thought process about what their choices are. 
And you know, one thing that we've taken for granted is the idea that when uh, persons with HIV are doing well, they're looking good when they see us, they are virally undetectable. There are mental health issues that yes. we miss. There may be fears of disclosure that we may not know unless we talk to them about it. There may be fears about missing doses that we may not know about unless we talk about it. And so these are some of the things that I try to, to bring out. And uh, it's quite uh, helpful to, in fact, I have a little checklist of some of the things that I tick and make sure that I, I cover them at least once initially. It's not uh, uncommon to see patients uh, twice a year. And so at least once a year, I try to make sure I revisit these issues and uh, have an ongoing discussion and make sure that patients know about the changes that are going on, which um, are significant. And then aging is so critical because, you know, as we all know, when patients are living with HIV uh, get older, there may be some predisposition to more uh, manifestations of some of these conditions, uh, yes. these conditions, and the heart is a particularly important one, particularly now that we're learning there may be some medical interventions that can be applied to mitigate the risk of HIV-related increase in cardiovascular disease. Uh, so you know, I'm 62 and you could be describing me. I don't have the kidney issues yet, but a lot of the things with diabetes, I'm concerned about high blood pressure, um, recently just changed my own regimen um, and have had some challenges with it, but it looks like it's working out okay. But yeah, I'm 62, lived with HIV now since 1987 and got an AIDS diagnosis in 1995. But you could be describing me and I know that my needs have changed. And one of the things that you just mentioned, which really resonates with me because they made my regimen a little bit more complicated than it was before. And now I find myself forgetting I took the medication. So I had to count everything out, put it in a little pill box and then look to see, did I take it or not? And then I have to take some with food. I have to time some, so there's at least two hours. And it's much more complicated as I'm older and busier. Uh, I think I'm busier as a 62-year-old than I was when I was you know, in my 20s and 30s. But um, we also recommend to our clients and our members of our social support network that they make a list and they track changes and um, that they bring that with them because sometimes you, know, you don't remember when you're in the doctor. I also, I noticed that when I go to a doctor's office, my blood pressure is always a little bit higher because you don't know what they're going to tell you. And I could be from years of being told that I might have only a year left to live. So I always have to wait like about 45 minutes or so to take the second blood pressure thing to see if it went down. And it actually has gotten under control in the last four or five months. Right. But thank you for all that. Wow, that's fantastic. You know, one other thing I ask my patients about uh, is tell me about your friends. And do you know why? Because social isolation is one of the things that we know directly contributes to morbidity and mortality, not just in persons living with HIV, but in society at large. Yes. And particularly amongst persons with HIV, particularly those who've been living with this for a very long time. They've lost many of their childhood friends during the, the height of the epidemic when we had no good treatments. And some of the ones that they are currently friends with, they've moved away and life is lonely. Unless you ask about the community, which is why the work that you're doing uh, in California is so important, critically important. 
in trying to make sure that this community continues and people feel like they remain connected because social isolation is actually a diagnosis. Right. Medical diagnosis, much like high blood pressure or diabetes, that is independently associated with adverse outcomes and this possibility increases with age. So I think yeah. that that I also try to to bring out and make sure I pay attention to. You know, one of my theories around this, my department at the Central AIDS Foundation is called um, Department of Aging Services um, because I felt that we had the HIV piece pretty covered and there's a lot of places that people could go. But I've noticed that in my work with different age, traditional aging partners, you know, who don't specialize in HIV, but do more of traditional seniors, that social health is something that's becoming much more important to recognize. And what people don't understand, depending on where you're living, many LGBTQI folks, if they didn't live in an urban area with a gay community or an LGBTQ that they felt they belonged, that isolation could start earlier in life and could also impact the medications that they take. You know, geography, there's so many things in addition to your life and your friends, like where you live sometimes. Like I I'm from Guam, you know, but tomorrow, and I remember when I first moved to Guam in 2001 and was told that they didn't stock the medications regularly because they were too expensive. And at that time, there were some challenges around storage because, you know, things had to be refrigerated and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, oh, no, no one told me this before I moved. And so I actually went for like a year without taking medications. And so I try to tell people, you know, to plan. Many people, you know, it's not uncommon for people to dream of retiring in another country or moving to another country or or another area at some point. But, you know, adjusting can be really challenging. And as people get older with HIV, especially nowadays, that they're they're still working on what that clinical model, which I think you're well on your way to creating for your clients. You know, there's a lot of things you have to take into consideration, not to mention also that, you know, many of my, our doctors here in San Francisco who've been with their clients for 20, 30 years are retiring. Mm -hmm. And when they go, they kind of take all of that knowledge of the client's case, you know, or their patient's case history with them. So that's another challenge. And I've talked with some folks and there's a feeling of abandonment and sometimes questioning, you know, you talked about the mental health earlier, sometimes questioning the purpose of living at this point, if everybody's dead, if I'm always going to be sick, if I'm only going to get sicker. But, you know, we try to paint a realistic picture of what is possible and kind of hopefully try through our engagement activities and social try to create optimism and hope, you know, give people something to look forward to. So we plan like regularly scheduled activities, you know, for holidays, because many folks, social networks, you know, have passed, they don't have children. So we plan to spend the holidays between November and December together. And those are always looked forward to. Um, and people have told us that because of that, they have something to look forward to at the end of the year and they don't feel so lonely. Right. And one of the groups of providers, workers that really help is social workers. And it is so important um, because, as you know, and you've highlighted in some of our previous discussions, that there is a time pressure that we feel as doctors, whether we like it or not. And it's very difficult to address all of these very important issues. We haven't even talked about stigma. For many people, it does not go away particularly if you belong to certain subgroups, even within the community of persons living with HIV. And yes. social workers are so critical. And I found that in my practice, I try to bring them on very early. When a patient is first registered, 
but also during the time that they're receiving care. And I like to create a direct pathway between my patient and the social worker to make sure that they can really access all the resources that are potentially available to them. Some of those resources are available within the clinic, but a lot are not available within the clinic. And so I rely on the social workers to help me connect persons to all the different resources that are available around them. Some of them I'm not aware of. One of the challenges that I've found though with maintaining this is the funding. Yes. Because <laughs> funding. There's no ICD-9 code for social service. When I say, oh, we provide a social service, I can't put that as a billable service per se, yeah. but it's so critical to the success of everything I do. And we've been fortunate in my clinic that we've had what are called grateful donors who yes. come back with money to say, okay, this is a priority. We will support creation of this sort of service to make sure people get the care that they need. So I would encourage you know, all of us to really and sometimes it's it's a uh, person with hiv themselves who are retired who are looking for some additional work to do would say well i have the time now i have the experience if you will take me i'm happy to help you know talk to some of your individuals maybe just do the referral if i don't have the expertise so there are different models but just having the extra hands the extra mind right. help the uh, medical doctor, the mid-level provider, really take care of patient is so, so important. Yeah, I mean, you could have, like San Francisco, we are pretty well resourced around different services, activities, but if you don't know where those are, if you don't know how to access them, if you don't feel welcomed, like for many of our trans and gender non-conforming clients, you know, do not feel welcome in certain clinics, so having that social worker, actually, even for me, like I was saying, I can't even remember sometimes if I took my medication or not, but having somebody to document your case and know your history, because, you know, I know for my clients that had this, especially early on when people were dying, we had this kind of a case manager. They felt seen. They weren't invisible. Where now as people get older, I think often they feel invisible and not seen, you know, because no one's really keeping track. And one of the important things that we're also seeing around the social health and connection is just having a familiar face, someone who just checks in with you on a regular basis is enough to keep people going. Whereas opposed to, you know, I've heard from our 50 plus members that a lot of times they'll show up at their doctors or the hospital and they're greeted so rudely that all they wanna do is go home. And we are actually investing, it's the other thing we're finding challenging, is transportation just getting people to their appointment as they get older and have mobility challenges so i'm investing in money for that and then you know certain things like people have said we can't have a picnic because who's going to get us we don't want to sit on the ground because how we're going to stand up which i didn't think about that you know there's so many things you take for granted but what i found does work is mixing different ages and if we can get everybody to kind of connect in a way, like we have an, um, an advocacy network that's intergenerational and to watch people come together for some of our events and, you know, share stories and it just feels like family. Right. And I think you've had some interest in understanding or at least um, helping people who have AIDS diagnosis you know, gain the disability status and, and that might even improve their overall care, right? Is that right? That's interesting because I've attended several HIV and aging conferences where that was the main, and many of the doctors that spoke said that they don't use AIDS diagnoses because of the stigma. Mm -hmm. But you actually 
having AIDS diagnosis your class of under disability. So you actually qualify for a lot of things under the Older Americans Act, but also for some of the more traditional aging services. Whereas HIV, even a diagnosis of disabling HIV doesn't guarantee that you're going to get your disability. You know, like I heard it at the U.S. Conference on AIDS recently that people like Social Security does not have a clear policy on HIV and disability. So sometimes when you apply for the first time, you might get deferred or declined. You have to ask for a hearing and that could take six months to a year and then you could get declined again. So there's a lot of policy changes that impact people. Now that we're starting to see this, we're at this kind of, in my opinion, crossroads where we have significant number of younger people, though maybe less are getting diagnosed, but we have kind of what they call in San Francisco the graying of HIV, where, you know, in San Francisco, 70, almost 75% of the people with HIV over the age of 50 and trying to figure out what it is that works, how do we connect people, what is it that's going to keep people from slipping into that isolation can be a bit challenging. You know, you mentioned the funding, people were trying, there's just so many issues. We could talk for like a day and, right. and not cover everything. Yeah, even just the AIDS diagnosis. I mean, I just learned right now that it's actually what you said is so important for us as providers because we're not helping our patients if we decide or forget to put that AIDS diagnosis as one of their medical problems because that actually may be what helps them to get the help that they need. That they need, right. It opens some doors. Now we're seeing like in my 50 plus members who are in their early 50s, but started their medication sooner after their diagnosis, it appears that their body's aged at a um, accelerated rate. Somebody asking me their age and what I thought their age was, and I actually missed it by about 15 years. Wow. So it's not just because biologically that's been shown to be the case that 15 years is a figure that has been thrown out based on um, looking at molecular um, markers. But you're saying that even physically one can even have, have that. And I think that's something that we have to take into account and really ties in very nicely with the need to do research. Yes. What is things driving the accelerated and sometimes accentuated aging process? Yes. These in person living with HIV because they eventually translate into increased occurrences of specific uh, age-related conditions. And so research in persons with HIV who are getting older is so, so critical. Of course, the world has not seen this population before. It's not as if we can, right. I can say, oh, as we did 50 years ago when we were taking care of 80-year-olds with living with HIV, uh, this is what we did then. We don't have that hindsight with specific, when it comes to persons living with HIV and who are getting older. So the research has to be his, has to be going on concurrently as management. And yeah. persons with HIV who are older have been underrepresented in HIV research. Right. Which and is you, there's been so many things that were acceptable when we were in our 20s and 30s around race, gender, all that kind of stuff. Sometimes being in the modern world can be a little bit traumatizing because everything is so new. You know, like I've had several clients who are trans identified, but have presented for services and found out that their original name often referred to as the dead names. They're referred to by that and that's traumatizing. And that makes people not want to take their meds and go see their doctor. But if you had a case where someone who's HIV positive and didn't want to take medication, 
how would you address that? Because we have had a few people, you know, based on lifestyle, maybe they don't have a house, maybe they are, if they feel it's too complicated, maybe they just don't want to. But if you had someone like that, how would you deal with that? Right. You know, one of the things that we learned, naturally learned early in medical school is that every human behavior has a cause, right? If I get up from my chair now and I go outside, it's not because I just, something pushed me outside. I'm probably going to get a bottle of water or maybe I want to, I want some fresh air. I want to stretch or something. So when someone tells me they don't want to take a medication that I know is life-saving, my job as a clinician is to become a diagnostician to try to understand why the why position wow. because they, there's a reason this is not this is not somebody who wants to i want to even if the answer is i want to die that's why i'm not taking the i don't want to take medication well that's the reason i may not agree with the reason but at least that is the reason that i need to work with the reason that the person has espoused but the first is to really understand what is making this individual make this decision and from that standpoint it's then my job to work with them to help them resolve whatever conflict might be online. And I know that we are in the era of rapid start. We want our patients to be on medication the same day or following day after they're diagnosed and suddenly within a few days of diagnosis beyond treatment. But some people may have valid reasons and truly legitimate reasons why they don't want to conform to the start model. And I think we may have to respect that. And yeah work with them to get them to the point where they feel like they really can take this medication. So we just have to appreciate that our patients will do, I think in general, what they think is best for them at that particular time. And we cannot usurp that uh, autonomy. It's funny that you mentioned that because after 2006, I actually did advocacy at the international level. And one of the things we pushed the World Health Organization was this rapid, and then Come to find out from some people, it's like nobody asked us if we wanted to be put on medication really that quickly, even though it's sound and whatever. So sometimes as an activist, I sometimes need to talk to my community and say, hey, this is what we're thinking. What do you think about this? Because for some people, technical will pride itself. You can test positive in the morning and by lunchtime, we can have you on your meds. But maybe some people need a little bit more time to think about this, to look at their life and think about what would best suit them. I think what is true is that there's just not a one size fits all. Right, right. We can nudge people towards earlier treatment by educating, by providing information. Most of the time when decisions are made without all the information, people do what they think is best for them based on what they know. If I look at myself in the mirror and I think, how I'm healthy, You're just telling me I'm living with HIV because I happen to want to be tested every three months, but I'm totally fine. I just ran a marathon two weeks ago. Why should I be in this pill tomorrow that you're telling me I need to take for the rest of my life? But maybe if you talked about the impact on the viral load reduction, if you mentioned the U equals U, and that once you're suppressed, you will not be able to transmit the infection. Maybe that's what the person needs to hear. And that's, I think, right. is one message that we don't pass along as uh, consistently as we hold. And, you know, one other thing that we often miss is that many people may be living with substance use disorder. Right. And We haven't and, even talked about that, yeah. Right. If you're 
pushing or go start medication. Well, they're not trying to. That's not their priority. Their priority is how do I get my next fix? And no if way. you cannot address that, then they're not going to take the medication. And it all goes back to really addressing the individual, understanding right. the person. Why doesn't this person want to take their medication? Or why are they not taking their medication inconsistently? I have seen patients who will not swallow the medication. I used to think right. of, of it as, oh, they just don't want to do it. But now I'm actually led to think that some people can't. They just physically can't swallow the right. thing every single day. So it's just about knowing your patient and really respecting them as an individual, allowing them to provide as much uh, correct information as you can. And I think for most people, eventually you get to the place where you want them to be. Yeah. I hope people can hear what you have to say, because I think you'd give them hope that there is a good doctor out there, you know, because some people have had very bad experiences with their doctors and they're very critical of the medical, but it's so clear from talking to you that you have compassion. And I remember, the thing that really struck me during our presentation was when you kept saying no one should be left behind. My friends say that all the time and it's just kind of taken for granted, but coming from you, it kind of really landed in a very soft spot for me, thinking we need to really find more doctors like you. I'm hoping that you train future generations of doctors because I just feel every time I talk to you, I just kind of relax and feel hopeful. And I think that that's something that needs to happen with any physical condition you have with your medical provider is to feel comfort, to feel seen, to feel welcomed, you know? And I just get that from talking to you. I mean, I could talk to you all afternoon if we didn't have to go somewhere else. <laughs> right. Oh, thank you so much, Vince. You're very generous with your compliments. Uh, I'm sure that you've also had the fortune of having uh, a lot of good uh, doctors uh, help contribute to your care yes. uh, over the years. I- I can honestly say I've been blessed throughout my life. Every time I need something, the person, the treatment, the service, whatever just shows up. Um, but I can also be critical too. I think that gives me some credibility. I can, I pay compliments or I, I appreciate folks when I see it and I express that. But then also I can tell folks, hey, I think you could do this a little better. But um, one of the other things I think I need to say is the other thing with our country, we're so diverse, is language. Someone tests positive and English is not their first language, trying to absorb all of this in such a short period of time without the proper translation. So we try to make that available here in um, San Francisco. And thankfully, some of the online translation has gotten much better than it was before. But that's right. something also a lot of people tell me that when they've tested that they need to hear it in their own language. Absolutely. I, th I think it's so important that when we're delivering care, we have to deliver it in the language that the person is most comfortable with. Right. And I think all clinics should strive for that. And until you do that, you really will be excluding people. There are subtle nuances that you lose unless you're communicating in the person's preferred language. And talking about leaving no one behind, you would agree with me that since we started talking, somebody somewhere got infected with HIV. Right. Right. Somebody somewhere died of an age related condition. Somebody somewhere got diagnosed with an age related condition that was accelerated by living with HIV. There's no doubt that much progress has been made, but there is still much work to do. Right. There are still many. The work is not done. The work is not done, which is one of the things that I think we can't be complacent. We can't say, oh, we have uh, pills that can work and have very little or no side effects. We have an injectable treatment, get it once every two months, 
and all is done. Right, we have covered at least talked about many of the unmet needs, ranging from mental health to social isolation to chronic diseases to the gaps in healthy life years, right? Mm-hmm. Feel life years between persons living with HIV who are on treatment and people who are not living with HIV. So there are still significant opportunities to equalize health, which is our ultimate yes. regardless of the person's HIV status. Our goal is to really. Uh, your goal, my goal, and all of our goals should be to equalize health outcomes, regardless right. of that. So it's wonderful talking to you, Vince. And I just wanted to also say that when the talk of the HIV cure first came up, I thought that would be great. This was my, maybe 15 years ago. But what about the human rights violations? What about the disparities, the issues around the intersectionality that has have brought up by by HIV and AIDS and all the things that are associated with that. It's like, it might be easy to swallow a pill, but we still need to work on those other issues. Absolutely. And the common buzzword or buzz phrase that we hear is we want to end AIDS. Yes. And you cannot end AIDS unless those things that you raised are addressed. So the work is not done. And I, I maybe I feel like we'll be having another conversation later on, but I hope the next time we do, we'll be talking about even bigger progress that happens in the intervening time and uh, getting closer and closer to that that goal of leaving no one behind and ending AIDS. So thank you so much, Vince. Thank you. I'm so grateful to be able to share this time with you and I hope our paths cross sooner than later. I do hope the same. Thank you so much. Thank you very much to Baba Femi Taiwo and Vince Chrysostomo and thanks to you, the listeners, for joining in. As a reminder to view the full program, Breaking Down Barriers, Dialogues on Optimizing Engagement in HIV Care, please click on the link in the show notes. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.